Good morning. Uh, the scripture for today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. I want you to think about what you might do if you knew that you had less than 48 hours to live. Not predicting that for any of you right now. But but if you did, and you knew that, what would you do? Would you shop for something you always wanted? I mean, you'd be gone before the credit cards do, right? Um, would, would you travel somewhere you always wanted to visit? Would you throw a big party? Maybe surround yourself with, with people you love? Or, or would you do the opposite? Would, would you turn inward and, and isolate yourself? I wonder if your, your last 48 hours would look any different than the rest of your life? That's an interesting question. Would you keep on living the same way you've always lived? I don't think I need to tell you that that few of us, as human beings, uh, know the measure of our days, right? I don't know the measure of my day. I, I could be gone tomorrow. I hope not. <laughs> but, I, but I don't know, right? That, that's part of the, the limits to our knowledge in our life as creatures. We're not the creator, we're the creature. But Jesus' experience as God incarnate was different. And so he knew, look at John 13 verse 1, he knew what? That his hour had come to depart out of this world. Fully aware of that. He knew he had less than 48 hours to live after some three years of public ministry. His disciples didn't know that. 
The Jews around him didn't know that. The the religious leaders didn't know that. But Jesus knew that. He knew that, that the mission the Father sent him to accomplish was nearly finished. And that it was time to go home. And that makes chapter 13 a significant turning point in John's gospel. It's a big one, okay? Because it marks the the end of 12 chapters of public ministry uh, known as the book of signs, okay? Where where Jesus performed seven, in particular, signs or miracles that, that testified or declared, revealed the truth of his divine identity, And in the same way, chapter 13 marks the beginning of of nine chapters, the last nine chapters of the gospel, known as the book of glory, because they, they culminate, they build up to what? The triumph of his death and resurrection. So it's a big turning point here. But 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 at the time, recognize this, Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion, as you kind of move through this last part of the gospel of John. It did not seem glorious at all to his disciples. It, it felt like the end of the line. Because, because the Messiah isn't supposed to die at the hands of his enemies, right? What, what's the Messiah supposed to do? He's supposed to conquer and vanquish his enemies. And, and Jesus, recognizing this confusion, he spends the next five chapters, 13 through 17, talking with his disciples, explaining to them what's about to happen in a really, really long conversation known as the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. He's telling them what to expect before he dies, but they still don't get it. Look at verse 7. Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. So he's, the context is he's explaining to his disciples what's about to happen to him. He knows he has less than 48 hours to live. And the fact that given, given that limitation, he wanted to spend his final hours of life on earth with his closest followers isn't surprising. I, I don't think that would be surprising to you or to me if you wanted to do that. But nothing could have prepared them for the scandal of what Jesus did at the beginning of that conversation. Nobody would have seen this coming. Okay, because as he had from the beginning of his ministry, he laid down his life for them in a remarkable act of humble service. That's what we want to think about this morning. Because Jesus' humble service in this chapter does a number of things, friends. And we're going to look at each one of these. It, it displays the depth of his love. It exposes or reveals the height of our pride. And it sets an example for us to follow. It does all of those things. So, so let's look at each one of those in turn, okay? Point number one, Jesus' act of humble service displays the depth of his love. Verses one through five. And I want us to linger here at the outset on something because we need to see and think about what compelled the Lord to do everything he's about to do. Okay, what what motivated him? What what caused him to do it? And I'm not just talking about everything that comes after chapter 1, verse 1 in chapter 13, but really the entire book of glory. Look at verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world... He, Jesus, loved them to the end. Do do you realize that none of Jesus' actions, praise God for this, are ever compelled by a joyless sense of duty or obligation? Do you know what that feels like? (laughs) Have you ever done something Compelled by a joyless sense of duty or obligation or because somebody made you do it, right? Not so with the Savior. Okay, they're, they're fueled by holy love, a love that flows from him to us, not because we are lovely, but because he is loving. And yes, there's a sense in which God loves the whole world, 
Right, John 3.16, God so loved the world, which is why he continues to this day. We, we prayed for this earlier, right? For different missionary partners around the world. To this day, through the church, he proclaims his free offer of salvation through faith in Christ. To whom? The entire world through the church. And yet, the Lord's redeeming or covenant-keeping love is reserved for his chosen the object of his particular affection. And, and that means that, that I have really good news for you, friend, if you're a Christian. Okay, if, if, you're, if you're clinging to Christ as your only hope for deliverance from sin and death, I have good news for you, okay? That there is a persistent, persevering, to the end quality to the Savior's love for you. That's really good news. Loving somebody to the end, I would argue, is exceedingly hard. Really difficult. I mean, just, just take a page from our experience, right? It, it's way easier to find a new spouse, right? We're a new friend. We're a new church. Than it is to hang in there for the long haul with someone. We, we know that from our experience in this life. And that is where God's love parts ways with our own. Praise be to God. Because if you're in Christ, Jesus' love for you will not fail or fade or lose momentum. He doesn't run out of gas. He's, he's not going to put you on relational probation or file for separation. He, he doesn't love us just on a whim, because he woke up that morning and I kind of felt like loving somebody, or no, or, or because it's convenient. Why do we know that? Well, because he endured to the point of death itself to love you, friend, to wash you and then cleanse you from sin, to make you righteous and bring you home to God. And so Jesus is the Savior who never forsakes the people he loves, ever Ever. He, he knew you. Think about this. Sins and weaknesses included before you were born. And you know what that means? Your failures and your sins and your mistakes and your just weekly foolishness, <laughs> even as Christians, it doesn't surprise the Lord. So, oh man, you know what? If I had known they would do that, I would never have set my covenant-keeping affection on them. He knew you would do that before you were born. His love's persistent. It's a to-the-end kind of love, and joyfully so. And, and the details, look at verses 2 and 3 that, that John adds here. It's so important to slow down and think about this because they only magnify the depth of the Lord's love. So what's going on? You've got one of his own disciples, Judas, about to betray the Lord. Jesus knows that. And guess where Judas is right now, the beginning of chapter 13? He's sitting at the dinner table with Jesus. That's the context. About to betray him, instigated by Satan. What's that tell us? That the Lord's love that he's about to demonstrate, it's not limited to his friends. It includes his enemies. What would you do if somebody you knew was about to betray you was sitting at your dinner table? Would you even let them stay at your dinner table? <laughs> it's, it's stunning. But, but John doesn't stop with describing who Jesus chose to love. He also reminds us of who Jesus is himself, right? So, so in that moment, as they're preparing to eat, what, what does John tell us about Jesus? He knew, look at verse 3, that the Father had given all things into his hands. In other words, G Jesus, in this moment, he's fully conscious of his personal and absolute authority over everything in the cosmos. He knows that, fully aware of that. He isn't, he isn't blind or unaware of his greatness or his glory. He knows there's, there's nobody in heaven or on earth greater than him. And, John isn't finished, Jesus isn't ignorant of his eternally divine nature. What else does he know? He knows that he had come from God. 
Could anybody else at the table say that? Yeah, me too, Jesus. I came from God. No, I mean, there's no other human being who could say what Jesus says in John 10, 30. What's that? I and the Father are one. Nobody else at that table could say that. Has ever been able to say that. You can't say that. We, We bear God's image, but we haven't come from God as our Lord did. And Jesus knew what? That he was also going back to God. That the future of his life Though it was unspeakably painful, so he was preparing to die, it wasn't dark to his understanding. It wasn't as if all Jesus could see was kind of incoming imminent suffering train. You ever experienced that in your life? And and couldn't see anything beyond that. He could see everything beyond that. What's that? That glory was coming. That the the father was about to highly exalt him and bestow on him, what does Paul say? The name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what's Jesus know? Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. He's thinking. He's aware of all of that. He he created the men reclining around him at that table. In that moment, he was giving them, their mortal bodies, the gift of life. Every breath. And in that same moment, you know what else he was doing? He was sustaining the universe by the word of his power. So, what did that man do? We did something that no self-respecting Jewish man would ever have done. Because it was a task so menial and so degrading that many considered it even beneath the dignity of household servants and reserved it for Greek slaves. But there were no slaves or servants in the room. It was just Jesus and his 12 disciples. And though it was a customary expression of hospitality, none of the 12 offered to do it. It was socially unthinkable. I mean, to to put it in kind of modern slang, it would have been turning in their man card. Okay? And besides, these were the same 12 that on multiple occasions earlier, what did they always seem to start talking about when Jesus wasn't addressing them? (laughs) Who's the greatest? Right? It's me. Shut up, it's me. Right? Like that. We laugh at that. It's because we're smart enough to not do it aloud. So what did Jesus do? Look at verse four. He rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. The the king of glory kneels down on the ground and, and begins to rub the dirt and dust and dung and grime off of their feet. to wash it with his hands that would soon have nails through him and that takes the towel and, and wipes and dries each one of them. And he moves on to the next guy. The next guy. He washed them and made them clean. 
And I, I seriously doubt if in that moment anybody was saying a word. Because it was scandalous. Stunning act of humility. But, but Jesus did it freely and joyfully. Why? Because he did not come to be served, but to serve. He, he didn't come to gain his life. He came to lay down his life. He didn't, he didn't come to acquire power and honor or glory in the, in the eyes of man. He, he came to announce and inaugurate the kingdom of God. He wasn't seeking the approval of men. It didn't matter whether people thought it was respectable or not. His disciples had a need, and so Jesus met them in love at the point of their need. And in so doing, mark this, he defined true love. Defined it. You realize we live in a world that is completely confused about what love actually is? This is a whole nother sermon, but suffice it to say, our world thinks love is God instead of worshiping the God who is love. I know of no other better way to say it than that. But of course, that love that we worship as God is a love of our own definition and our own making, and it simply consists of, does it feel loving to me? In contrast, friend, real love, God's love, it's displayed in humble service, sacrificial service that would lead Jesus in less than 48 hours to the cross where the one who washed our feet died to cleanse our souls. That's real love. It was a powerfully prophetic act his foot washing. It reflected the pattern of his entire ministry and it pointed forward to the death he was about to die as the servant of the Lord. And mark this, at least one of his disciples would have none of it. Point two, Jesus' act of humble service exposes the height of our pride. Think about this, verses 6 through 11. Look at Peter's response in 6. When Jesus comes to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? In the original language, it's you, me, washing feet? Because in Peter's mind, something was terribly wrong, you know? If anybody should not be washing feet, it's Jesus. It makes no sense. It's, it's beneath your dignity, Lord. I mean, would, would a president wait tables at a state dinner? Would a, a five-star general clean the barrack toilet? No. But Peter's incredulous. And, and Jesus gently assures him that one day he will understand the significance of what the Lord's doing. And yet, look at verse 8, Peter stubbornly refuses to cooperate. You shall never, ever wash my feet. And in the original language is added unto eternity. He's practically swearing. And up to that point, you might think that Peter's kind of stammering reluctance here was motivated by a deep respect for Jesus' honor and dignity. The opening question, you, me, wash feet, sort of suggests as much. But when he outright refuses in verse 8, his unwillingness to let Jesus serve him, it's not just unwilling, it's refusal, reveals something deeper is going on. And Jesus knows it. And so he, he warns Peter accordingly. Look back at verse 8. Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. What does that mean? Well, it means that the core message of the gospel, the very heart of Christianity, is one big massive offense to human pride. That's what that means. A massive offense to human pride. The gospel says that we are wicked sinners. Every one of us. Not, not just Hitler or Stalin or, or your favorite 
bad guy deserves the righteous judgment of God on account of our rebellion. We, we all do. We, we need someone outside of ourselves to save us from God. And you can't do that for yourself. Nor can I. You, you can't create life for yourself by keeping all the rules or breaking all the rules. You're, you're utterly powerless, friend. To make right what your sin has made wrong, whether in you or around you. Only God can give you spiritual life. You, you need Jesus to wash you. You need Jesus to cleanse you. you. You need him to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And that's really humbling. Why? Because I'm at the front of the line of the people shouting and holding the posters and wearing the t-shirt that says, I don't like needing help. <laughs> mm. Oh, do you need help? I'd be happy to help. Happy I about all of you to the praise of my God's glory. But I don't like needing help. You ever watched a young child just struggling with this? You know what I'm talking about, parents? A young child, I mean, let's go three year old, angrily insisting, like to the point of crying, angry on doing something themselves. When they, they can't even hit the cup with the milk jug. <laughs> you know? They, they, they can't inside out their pants. They can't tie their own shoes. I'll do it myself. You know, and... I can hear it in the room. Part of us laughs at that, right? It's kind of fun to watch. Ha <laughs> look at you. That's so sad. But you know, if, if you have eyes to see, there's something deeply troubling about that. Because it's a mirror to my soul and yours that we don't like being dependent. We would rather serve someone else than allow them to serve us. A, a little support here and there, sure. We all need a hand up. I'll go along with that. But admitting the moral stain of my sin is so great that, that I need God to die for me in my place so I can be forgiven. Confessing that, that I don't deserve it, that I could never earn it, that, that, I'm, that I am totally and completely and eternally dependent on God's mercy? That's downright un-American. <laughs> but that's exactly what biblical repentance requires, is it not? That's what genuine faith says. Genuine faith in Jesus doesn't say... I'm basically good, and I need God to kind of fix some of my problems. So I'll come to church and talk with some Christian people, and yeah, you know, Jesus will kind of, that's the fix I needed. No. No. Genuine faith in Jesus says, Lord, I am completely lost apart from you. I need you to wash me. I need you to cleanse me. And, and if, you're, if you're unwilling to do that, friend, if you can't say that with integrity, if you're unwilling to come to God with what Jesus says in Gospel of Matthew, a poverty of spirit and, and cast yourself wholly and completely on his grace, on his mercy, then, then what does Jesus say to you as he says to Peter? You can have and you do not have any share or part or hope or salvation or future or promise with me. None. Why not? I thought God helps those who help themselves. Isn't that American? Yeah, but it's not biblical. Why? Because God's grace is always reserved for the humble friends. For the humble. Jesus recognized the pride behind Peter's refusal. He saw through all that. Oh, you know, you're, Jesus, you're too important to do this charade. He saw the pride 
And so he warned him, Peter, unless you humble yourself by allowing me to serve you, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, buddy. And typical Peter, in response to Jesus' warning, look at verse 9. He just swings to the opposite end of the spectrum. I love this. Lord, not my feet also, but also my hands and my head. What's, what's going on? He, he clearly has yet to grasp. You know, Peter, there's actually a spiritual significance <laughs> to what Jesus is talking about here. That's over his head. All he knows is, I want to be with Jesus and whatever it takes, count me in. Aren't you grateful that even amidst our ignorance, Jesus honors and rewards the simplest faith? What a gift. And so he makes a profoundly important point in response to Peter, verse 10. Look there. The one who is bathed, showered, does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. I just love his illustrations. So think about it. What's he saying? If you take a shower and then you stroll across a dusty street in sandals filled with animal dung, do you need another shower? All the teenage boys said, no! <laughs> You're already clean. I mean, seriously. You, you just got part of you dirty. Your feet that need to be washed. And Jesus says the same principle holds true spiritually. Wait, what's he mean by that? that? That when Jesus cleanses your soul through faith, trust, in the power of his blood shed for you on the cross, hear this, friend. You are completely cleansed from the guilt of sin and eternally so. Amen to that, right? We could sing right now. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. The whole Godhead is in on making you once and for all clean. The moment you trust in Christ. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So, why then would John write in 1 John 1.9, to his fellow Christians. If, as Christians, who have been cleansed once and for all, if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Which one is it? Have we been washed or do we still need to be washed? You see that? What's the answer? Yes, that's right. Yes, both. Even though we've been cleansed once and for all from the guilt of our sin, if you're in Christ, past, present, future, we still sin, right? We still go our own way instead of God's way. And when the Spirit graciously convicts us of that, because conviction is a gift, what do we need? We need the purifying power of who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross to come to bear, to be brought to bear in that particular area of our life anew, afresh. Not, Not to avoid condemnation in the courtroom of heaven, listen carefully, but so we might become in our life what Jesus has already declared us to be. What's that? Righteous as he is righteous. Okay, to to, to summarize that, we need to know experientially what is already true positionally. J.C. Ryle says it this way. We learn that even those who are cleansed and forgiven need a daily application to the blood of Christ for daily Pardon. Isn't that true? Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts. We cannot pass through this evil world without defilement. 
walking through the street. There's not a day in our lives, but we fail and come short in many things and need fresh supplies of mercy. It's so true. The question is not, is the Lord eager to give that mercy? The question is whether we will humbly confess our need. At home, at work, your relationships with your friends or your, or your spouse or your kids, will you, will you confess your need for God's mercy or will you keep holding on to spiritual pride that says, I don't need help. I'd rather try to save myself. I'd rather try to clean up my life with God as my helping homeboy. And, you know, I'll give him a shout out, but... but Total dependence? Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Thanks be to God. He's more than able to cleanse us from that sin too. Point number three. Jesus' act of humble service sets an example for us to follow. Look at verses 12 to 20. What, 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 what's the Savior done? Quick review. He's demonstrating He's demonstrated the depth of his sacrificial love. Never have they ever seen someone like Jesus wash feet. And then he's reminded his disciples of their need. And then, verse 14, he tells them to follow his example. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Okay, now, does that mean that we should cleanse one another through mutual confession from sin in some way the way Jesus does? No. No, okay? Washing their feet in a symbolic sense. What what did that represent? It certainly pointed forward to the cross where Jesus died to wash away all our sins. But but in a symbolic sense, it also represented a life of selfless service to the people around him. And following him, this is the point of verse 14, if you want to be a Christian, means doing exactly the same thing. Means sacrificially serving one another, especially in the church, in the same way Jesus served us. It it means embracing humble servanthood, not, not as some kind of occasional good work that you dabble in like a hobby, but sacrificial service as the rule of your life, the pattern of your life. I don't think the principle is hard to understand. The challenge is applying it, right? Doing it. And that starts with evaluation. So so let's be honest. Be honest right now. Okay, when you see another person, especially people that are closest to you, are you more focused on how how they could meet your needs or how you could meet their needs? What, What do you linger on in your mind? Is your life oriented toward serving other people or serving yourself? What would your friends say? Or what would your spouse say? Or what would your kids say? I I think few of us would categorically refuse to ever serve somebody. Again, we're too street smart for that. That would be bad PR, so we're not going to go there. But but how quickly we place limits, you know? We call them boundaries on what we're willing to do for one another. Think about it. I'll take a meal to another family at church as long as it's convenient. I'll practice hospitality and have someone over for dinner once the kids learn to behave or if life is less busy. I'll spend time with that friend as long as as they initiate toward me as much as I'm certainly initiating toward them and that they never say anything hurtful. Or I'll participate in the life of my community group as 
long as it fits nicely in my schedule. Or I'll play with the kids when I get home, when I feel like it's been a really good day at work. Or, or I'll spend my day off giving my wife a break from the kids as long as I get a little something, something before I go to bed tonight. Or I'll serve on a ministry team in the church as long as it perfectly matches my unique gift set and is something I thoroughly enjoy doing and doesn't feel like work because serving in the church shouldn't be like my week. It, it, it shouldn't feel like work. Really? Is, is any act, here's the question, okay? Is any act of service too menial or too sacrificial for you, friend? When you see a need, is your first thought, that's not my job, or somebody else should take care of that. If somebody doesn't take care of that, I'm piecing out. Somebody else should take care of that. <laughs> or, or how can I help? Even if, even if helping costs you dearly, even if other people think you deserve better, or, or that's beneath you, or why would you let them just take advantage of you? Stand up for yourself. I, I'm not, please hear this, okay? I am not discounting the wisdom of relational boundaries. I am saying that time after time after time, we use those as lazy, selfish excuses to avoid doing the very thing Jesus did for us. And if that offends you to hear that, well then take up your beef with Jesus. <laughs> Because I need to hear those strong words just like you do. If, if we refuse to sacrificially serve others, especially the people closest to us, I mean, isn't it amazing? We, we'll, we'll cheer for sacrificial service because in our minds, it's like serving me. <laughs> you know? I'm all for sacrificial service, provided I'm the object of it. Oh, it's been such a long day. You want me to do what? You know, it's... When we refuse to sacrificially serve, especially the people closest, realize this, we are functionally saying that we are greater than Jesus. You realize that? When in reality, he's infinitely greater than us. Think about it. If washing his disciples' feet wasn't beneath the dignity of our Lord, why would we consider any act of humble service as beneath our own? Because through his, his example, what was Jesus doing here? He's dignifying sacrificial labor in a complete reversal of the world's values. Complete reversal. And, and if we're going to follow his servant king, we should cheerfully expect to do likewise. Friends, what, the world looks to the CEO of a Fortune 500 company as the standard of greatness. Jesus points to a mom Caring for three young kiddos. Okay, the world looks to an athlete performing at an elite level. Jesus points to a dad loving his disabled adult son. The world looks at how much money you've made or stored up for yourself in your barn. Jesus points to how much money you've given away. To the suffering saints for whom you've prayed. And to the men and women that in unseen ways, in unseen corners, at unknown times, you have spiritually built up through a timely word of encouragement. That's where he points. And if you wash people's feet in, in all manner of practical ways like that, it usually won't cause other people to recognize you. Or write a best-selling biography about you. Or you may not even get a single word of thanks. Ever. In this life. But then again, I mean, whose glory are we really living for? Right? Who, whose approval are we chasing after who's well done do you want to hear more than any other in the universe 
It should be the Lord's. Because there is an inescapably cruciform character to the path of faithful obedience to Jesus. And sometimes we think, oh, don't we do this. If I'm doing what God wants me to do, if I'm following him, why is my life so hard? Why is it so hard? I mean, didn't Jesus come to give us joy? Didn't you say that, Pastor? And like, was his joy, right? It was fullness of joy. I don't got any of that right now. So I must not be following Jesus. I, I must be outside of his will. I, I shouldn't stay in this relationship. I shouldn't keep in this friendship. I, you know what? I am done being run over by my spouse and my boss and you, Pastor, and every other living human being. I'm, I'm going to stand up for myself because I have rights. I'm an American. can't be hard if I'm doing God's work. Thought my life was supposed to get better. That's what all those Christians said. Wasn't I supposed to be healthier and wealthier and joyfuler or whatever? <laughs> to which Jesus replies, what? The path of dying to yourself laying down your life for others is the only path, child, that leads home to heaven. And I've walked that path before you. I walked it first. Because you certainly would have never. But I walked it so I could turn around having walked it and hold your raging feeble hand and patiently persisting through my to the end kind of love. Make sure that you learn to follow after me in the same sacrificial love I've shown you. He's a faithful savior, friends. When you hear this and think, I can't do that. I haven't been doing that. I can't do that. I'm going to go home right now and not apply this message. <laughs> Remember, we serve a faithful savior who was tempted and tried in every way yet without sin so that he could what? Be a merciful and faithful high priest to teach us and help us and, and show us how to sacrificially love the way he does. If you hear this and you think, I quit. Stop. Far better to say, help Jesus. Please help. Obeying the Lord's word to us and this chapter requires humility in two directions. I'll end with this. First, it requires a humility that is willing for the Lord to serve us. And here's the kicker, willing to receive his help through the people he sends to help us. So whenever we resist help, from a brother or sister in Christ by, by hiding our troubles, I'm fine. Or refusing their counsel or support, we are functionally stiff-arming God himself. That's what Jesus is saying. Not just the Son, but the Father. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, that takes humility, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. That's the first humility. Here's the second. A humility that considers no act of sacrificial service too great or too small or too degrading or too menial or too costly. And again, if like me, you struggle to lay down your life for others the way Jesus does for us, then remember this, okay? Jesus doesn't just set the example. He actually frees us to practice the same kind of love toward one another by doing what? Lavishing his sacrificial love on us. He doesn't just say, okay, here's the pattern. Get with the program. He says, here's the pattern. You must follow me. And now, let me remind you and show you and reveal to you and confront your eyes with the depth of my sacrificial love until that melts your heart. If you want to grow in this area, you need to do this. 
You need to meditate, friend, on the Savior's sacrificial love for you. Think about it. Sing about it. Read about it in the Word. Listen to sermons about it. Because that is how God will soften your heart. No wellspring of sacrificial love for man is greater than experiencing God's love for you. And he does that work in us so we could experience the joy of loving him and one another, not as the world loves, but as God himself loves. And so I leave you with these words from 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. To which I say with Jesus in verse 17, if you know these things, Blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Father, I ask as we sing now about your sacrificial love that you would indeed melt our hearts. Father, what we require, as you have said, is is not a temporary emotional high or a fleeting feeling or frame that grasp your love. We need a steady, day in, day out, abiding, understanding, and seeing, and delighting in your sacrificial love. That we might be freed to do the same. Help us with that, Lord. Help us to not get stuck in this area on account of our failure to meditate on your love. Amen.